Hello and welcome to episode 94 of Feckin' Metal. I'm your host, Fergal Trainer. This week's episode is a direct continuation of last week's episode where I was interviewing DJ Neil Kay, somebody who is known as being very prominent in the rise of the new wave of British heavy metal in the late 1970s. Now, last week Neil brought us up to maybe the mid to late 1970s. He talked about his early DJing career. And I cut it off just as he was asking me to get the interview back on track because as somebody who's had such a long career, Neil has many stories to tell. And I appreciate all the feedback I got from several of you who enjoyed his stories quite a lot. So thanks for that, anyone who contacted me. Part one seems to have gone down a treat. Now, in part two, we're picking it up just as the new wave of British heavy metal is kicking off. So things are about to get meaty. And this is going to be of interest, particularly to people who are huge Iron Maiden fans like myself. So if you're an Iron Maiden fan, strap yourself in to hear about the start of Iron Maiden's career and the first time their demo tape got played in a public forum, all courtesy of Neil Kay. Also on this episode, Neil makes mention of some interesting things that took place at the Soundhouse in the bandwagon. So he talks about Rob Loonhouse, who might be somebody familiar to people who have read up on or watched documentaries based on the new wave of British heavy metal. And he talks about how he became trusted by record companies and industry people due to the prominence of his heavy metal Soundhouse nights. He gives us his opinion about what made Iron Maiden stand out when he was handed their demo. Uh, He talks about trying to get the band Riot a record deal in the UK, their first album coming out in 1977, uh, Rock City. He talks about the influence that Glenn Miller's orchestra and Buddy Holly eventually had on heavy metal. And he kind of touches a bit on Def Leppard as well, another one of those bands that were quite prominent at the start of the new wave of British heavy metal. All this and a lot more... And if you listen to last week, you know, that's not just some filler shite I'm saying here to get to the next bit of the episode. But no, all this and quite a lot more because Neil, as we learned last week, has a lot to say on this episode. And if you're choo-choo choosing to spend your time with me tonight, I really appreciate it. Here's Neil. Put it back on track, No worries. I was saying that um, Tommy Van started the rock show around the same time that uh, your... Top 20 in sounds has been published regularly. It was just kind of like, I was asking you, was the tide turning in that way at the time? Or were they capitalizing on what they saw in the media or what they saw happening in, in the sound house? Well, I mean, the thing was that because I had a unique venue, there was no other. I said yeah. it was punk, punk, punk. Mm. I had the absolute cream of the crop of an audience mm. at the wagon. They were all ultra dedicated fanatical, serious, heavy metal fans. They knew every word of every lyric of every song. They knew every chord progression. Mm. They knew and they worshipped in it. Yeah. And I also had the country's looniest madman. Mm. I didn't want a venue full of wallflowers. Yeah. My spirit's really high. I love driving them, you know. Mm. That's what I do. I make them laugh with music, but I drive them. Yeah. And I want it I wanted the country's loonies to be at the venue mm. because when the press came, which they often did, mm. huh, even the Sunday Guardian turned up, believe it or not. <laughs> Hi, bro. I used No, oh, yeah, we had them all. <laughs> but I, I wanted all these performers on the floor. Mm. And we did have some outstanding performers, which also led to more madness, mm. right? Rob. Loonhouse, the first man to play a hardball guitar, was born in the sound house. I'm familiar with him, okay. Oh, what a... Yeah, but Rob was serious. Mm. Today, he is a recluse. He doesn't talk to anyone. He doesn't speak to anybody. Mm. But he was also an extra member of Iron Maiden for a while for the encores. I'm going to tell you about the show that we did at the Rainbow. There was no support band. Maiden were filming... Um, a promo vid for their second album. Steve phoned me up and asked me if I'd do the support. Yeah. And by the way, why don't you bring that crazy bunch with you? <laughs> Rob Loonhouse, because I'd run... See, it wasn't enough to have big names there. I wanted more, mm. more madness. And we came up with the idea of Ed Banger of the Year. Mm. First one, that was the contest. A judges panel made up of the finest Soundhouse members... And we put up stage blocks in front of my stage. And I had a little head-banging model made. And here's me giving that to the winner. Oh, yeah. Very good. By the way, I want you to observe something, Fergal. 
see the chains in the background yeah on the discotheque mixer mm -hmm. well they are supporting the console yeah it's free and the reason they're supporting it is that it the sound system was so loud that bottom end feedback used to run up through the floor mm. up through the stage and onto the pickups mm -hmm. of the decks and in order to avoid that we actually had to fly the discotheque console from the rafters on chains yeah and there is absolute proof it's true i can see it yeah i was only reading about this actually yeah but yeah i could see it there in the photo all right yeah, Very yeah good. that's the truth yeah. so yeah. so i came up with this mad thing about ed banger of the year of course, Loonhouse entered with his hardball guitar, and by then, others had seen it, yeah. and they all started this. And on an average Sunday night, we even did two or three on top of each other's shoulders mm. with the top man with a hardball guitar. Mm. Right. And I thought, next year, what am I going to do to better this? I've got to keep it moving. Mm. I need the continued presence of the media. Okay. Because I have to keep the bandwagon in focus. It's the only metal venue the country has. And I won't have it, you know, disintegrating into a normal arena. It's got to be outstanding, extraordinary. And I hit on this idea, well, we don't headbanger of the year. Let's do headbanging band of the year. Only this time, with the connections I had in the industry, I've said to everyone, look, I'm going to pull in an all-star judges panel for the final. You are allowed only hardboard or cardboard instruments. You can have hardboard or cardboard 4B12s, heads, drums, mm. keyboards. The one thing you can't have is a real instrument. <laughs> and you're allowed a road crew as well. Mm. You will inform me of the track you're going to do, obviously beforehand, and I'll set it all up. And we went through the heats that were judged by um, in-house residential fans. Mm. And then the final came. And I had members of Judas Priest, Motorhead, mm. I Maiden, from the press corps, Jeff Barton, of course. Um, somebody from Melody Maker was on the panel. Right. I mean, it was an absolutely manic night. And it got incredible press coverage. It really, really did. So Headbanging Band of the Year hit the music papers in a really big way. And it was so funny. And everyone wanted to be there, you know, because mm. whatever next am I going to do sort of thing. Um, and it, it gained me great favor sure. with the industry to show that I could laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. Yeah, yeah. I, I've definitely seen... Seen those photos of Rob Loonhouse with his homemade guitar and, and that type of thing. And I, I think he cropped up in an old BBC documentary about heavy metal that was like. He did. Yeah. That, uh, a short a short piece on some uh, current affairs program. We did, we did 20th Century Box with Danny Baker. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he was a piss taking fucker. Oh, was he? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. You know, I got out, I got out of my Jag, which I had at the time. Hmm. And I had a couple of vinyls under my arm just to put into the wagon. Mm. And they filmed that. And then Danny Baker's voiceover said, oh, look at this. He's got all of two records. <laughs> you know, he was a speaking fucker. He really needed a slap, to be honest with you. 20th Century Box was a waste of time. Um, I remember that with, with much clarity. I'll never forget it. He was an arsehole. He was a wide boy. He had nothing to do with rock whatsoever. And he knew now. Do you know what, though? At, at least some of that footage lives on now. Uh, even if he was a piss taker or whatever, we could we could still watch it, though. Yeah, I know. I know it's out there. Which is, it's it's historically relevant. Yeah, yeah. If you say so, sir. If you say so. I'll, I'll let you get away with that. By the way, I cast your mind back to a silver screen episode where Make Em Laugh is absolutely publicised for the first time. Singing in the Rain, 1955. Hmm. Donald O'Connor, in the movie, does an incredible routine with a dummy called Make Em Laugh. And in this routine, he, he throws himself around a room, tap dances across, across one wall, over the top and down the other side, throwing this dummy all over the place. And it's one of the funniest things I ever saw. And Make Em Laugh is what I always quote. Make Em Laugh 
Make them laugh with music is my thing. Very good. But not often. Like Hocus Pocus by Focus, the Dutch jazz rock band yeah, yeah. of the early 70s. Hocus Pocus was, was the Soundhouse classic Sunday night number. Mm. Only when, well, not only when, but when we had special visitors. Mm. Like somebody from The Guardian. Okay, right. Who came wearing a checked sports jacket, brown brogue shoes, nice sensible trousers, a sports jacket with leather pads on the elbows, a cord jacket in dull green. Mm. And he looked for all the world like he was a fisherman or lost or something. Hold on, I'm, I'm surprised he got in with the dress code, but did you make a special allowance for the press? Well, no, because yeah, no, no, we knew he was coming. <laughs> That's the only reason. No, he was fodder. <laughs> he was sound house yeah. fodder. Are you kidding? How could I miss an opportunity like that? In Hocus Pocus, when Jan Ackerman does the yodeling mm. and he runs down the scale to the bottom... I whip the faders down, everyone shouts, fuck off! And then I put them right back up again. Mm. There's just that right amount of gap. And I used to take to saying to the crowd down there, right, and now give me one for bloody bloody blah Our guest tonight, let's hear it! Mm. Fuck off! They all shout. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I did that at Donington in 1980, mm. and about 60,000 people shouted, fuck off. Very good. <laughs> so, yeah, it was very good, and it was my thing. And everyone knew it. It was a sound house thing. Fantastic. A lot of fun. And actually, um, Iron Maiden went on to cover that uh, many, many years later. They did. Yeah, uh, they did. Yeah, yeah they did. Um, so, you know, basically, the sound house was a great place. And it had one of the rarest things of all. It had an audience that became trusted by the industry. They were asked many times, for example, when touring American Acts came over, I came over to play the Odeon, mm. London and other venues. You know, they contacted me. The management, mm. Sammy Hager's manager, phoned me up one day. And I, I was booked to, to do the um, in-between sets anyway as DJ Compare and Linkman. Yeah. The John Curd of straight music. By now, you know, I was touring and doing things at high level as well. Mm. And um, I was contacted by, you know, Sammy's management, mm. for example. And they asked me if I'd talk with my people and put together a, a set list, you know, that would be popular with the British audience right. on tour. Okay. And no, we did that many times. Mm. Did it for Judas Priest as well. Yeah. It became really, actually, for a period of about a year and a half, two years, I was actually managed by Anna Carter, which was Judas Priest's manager. That's how I got the Donington thing, and that's how I got um, the Hemispheres tour with Rush. Very good. Um, okay, now I feel like we skipped a very, very important part um, because we've kind of on, jumped then. a bit forward and we've jumped a bit back, and then we've you know various different things that happened along the way. But we were kind of at the cusp of you getting handed the uh, very famous demo tape by Steve Harris. I know you mentioned it. I think it was Steve Harris and Loopy who came down to the sound house in, was it early 1979? No, it wasn't. It, no, it wasn't Loopy. It was it not Loopy? It was one of the other bands. No, it wasn't Loopy. All right, okay. He might have been there, but he didn't come up on stage. Steve came up. And I don't know, it It, it might have been Paul. Mm. It may well have been Paul. Paul's always been a great front man when it comes to communicating with an audience. Yeah. He knows how to talk to an audience. Let's put it to you that way. Mm -hmm. As regards the vocal thing, him and Bruce, we'll maybe speak about that later. Yeah, okay. So I've read a couple of different accounts. One is that it was Steve and Paul, and one was that it was Steve and Loopy. Anyway, you're saying it was Steve and Paul. I'm going to take your word for it. Uh, or possibly Paul, anyway. Um, so basically, yeah, you've been doing this uh, heavy metal sound test now since 75. Around early 1979, let's say definitely, anyway, Steve Harris was there, and he arrives with... The demo tape, which you showed me at the start of this interview, which is four songs that had been recorded in late 78, in December 1978. They handed you the infamous what would become the Soundhouse Tapes demo. Yeah, I mean, Steve and I still talk about this today. Um, my initial react, I was very rude to Steve. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind telling you now. I mean, I've told everyone. Mm. Steve still remembers my words at the time of passing over the tape. Yeah. I was rude. I was very rude, probably too bloody arrogant for my own good. Mm. I said to Steve when he passed me the tape, what he wanted, actually, he only gave it to me um, 
because he wanted to try and get some gigs yeah. at the bandwagon. That's what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And he gave me the tape. He said, would you please give this a listen, you know, when you've got a moment or two mm. and see if, you know, you can arrange gigs. And I, I said, I said, you and half the world, mate. Yeah. I'll take it home. And when I've got a minute, I'll listen to it. And if it's any good, I'll call you. <laughs> God almighty, I hate myself for that. I really do. And Steve and I laugh about that today. And he still remembers yeah, yeah. every fucking word. Because <laughs> Harris has got a photographic memory. Right. He has got an absolute killer of a memory. Yeah. And he never forgets anything. Yeah. And that, that was really embarrassing. Mm. Um, and, of course, you've got to understand, Fergal, we are talking about a very long time ago. Yeah. We did not have a digi digital age. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, bands were impoverished anyway, mm. young bands. Mm. No one hardly had any money. The further north you went, the worse the demo tape quality was. Mm. In studios of the time, very few recording engineers knew how to capture a rock band's sound. That's because up until the sound house, there was no outlet for them and no one was recording anything. Yeah. And engineers of the day were so used to punk and sorts of shit. Well, originally the older ones would have dealt in a very, very basic manner with the late sixties mm. sounds. But, you know, we, it was like a new experience. No one knew exactly how, to make a guitar sound good on tape, mm. you know? And also, the studios were expensive. So the general quality of the demo tapes arriving is usually pretty poor. Yeah. You know, I mean, I learned how to avoid the overall, uh, you know, audio appearance of the recording by using my musician ears and getting into the music beyond... Mm the quality of the sound. Um, but this, this studio, this was actually this demo tape that I'm very happily showing mm -hmm. when it will come into focus, if it ever does. Well, was not the first demo tape I had from Spacewood. Okay. In fact, Praying Mantis's demo tape, which I have here, mm. predates this by months. Okay. They were the first in Spacewood. And at Spacewood Studios, it quickly became apparent that there was somebody there who knew what he was doing mm. to the nth degree back, back in the day. Yeah. And I was very impressed with Mantis's demo. Sure. Oh, was I ever. What a great band they were going to be. So it wasn't just the quality of Maiden's demo. It was the quality of the musicianship. And more importantly, the structure of the songs was such that they were melodic, but they also had all the key elements. They had speed, time changes, key changes, melodic chord progressions, mm. uh, choruses to die for. Mm. And the whole package was actually put together by, obviously, someone who knew what they were doing. And they were miles above most things that I'd heard up to that date. Yes. And it was obvious to me that they're a band, a future big band in the making. And I, I say the same thing today that I said and wrote back then. Yeah. It's obvious, but unfortunately, it seemed at the time that it was only me and Steve and the others in the band that it was obvious to. Yeah. And it was an uphill struggle, believe me, when I used to take this demo around to the record companies you won't believe some of the responses I got. Did you go visit these places in person or did you write letters? Yes, absolutely. In person, every time with the tape. Okay. I said to Steve, as I phoned him back in two days. A couple of days went by. I phoned Steve up. I was jumping around my lounge at the time listening to it, you know, for a couple of days. And I just knew straight away, that's it. That's the answer. That is going to go all the way. Yeah. And I phoned up Steve and I said, listen, you... I can't wait to get you here. I am so impressed with this tape you've given me. Mm. I want to make it my personal job, my personal work to try and go around the record companies for you. And I want to try and get this where it needs to go. Mm. You are going to be very wealthy one day, Steve Harris, and you're going to be right on top of your tree. 
And I, he laughed. And I said, listen, I don't make predictions like this very often. In fact, if ever. Mm. You know, I don't fuck around. You'll come to know that my word is what I say. And I'm, and what, what you hear is what you get. And I'm telling you now, I don't care who in the industry is going to argue with me. They're all going to be fucking sorry because you are going to be what you are. And I was bold enough and brave enough to put it on the back of the Soundhouse tape. Yes, you were. Yeah. You, you, the vinyl. You wrote those uh, liner notes famously. Yep, I did. And I still say the same thing today. It was bloody obvious. Trying to convince an industry that was deafened by punk and shit was hard. You know, I took the tape round to all the record companies that, that knew me as well. That was even worse. Mm. I mean, I tried a few that I knew, you know, wouldn't wouldn't take it on. You know, I went to see my Charlie, uh, my mate Charlie Ayers at A and M because at the wagon we were playing diverse rock music every night we were open. Mm. Sticks, bands like that. You know, we do prog rock, we do all sorts of things. Yeah. Even told the Pink Floyd story in Quadraphonic. We used to do stories of bands. It was a great place. Every night, something different. We do like the Deep Purple Rainbow story, the Free Bad Company story. The 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 favourite fans that followed those bands would write the story. I'd read it out, play the tracks that they pointed to in between. Right. So you know, it was a connoisseur's night. On the connoisseur's night, you could hear Genesis, yes, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Robin Trower. You could hear almost anything you wanted yeah. on Connoisseur's Nights in the early part of the week. The Wagon was a complete home for all fans of classic rock music. Very diverse if it needed to be. Mm. So, you know, it came to all this, and um, I did tour the record companies. Later on, I had a ruck with, um, F with, no, not Epic, it would have been Capitol Records, on the subject of the American New York band Riot. Mm. I'll tell you about that a bit later. I had a massive rut with the MD of Capital back then about releasing the album because they were over supporting Sammy Hager. Yeah. And Capital Records refused to release the album, which is fucking ridiculous. You've got a band on tour. What was this now? Narita? Uh, what would it have been at the time? No, 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 no. Rock, no, Rock City. Rock City, okay. It was Rock City. Favourite Soundhouse track, Warrior. Second mm. track, Rock City. Yeah. Um, basically, um, Billy Arnell, their manager, who lived on a houseboat on the Hudson in New York, he called me up one day, introduced himself and said, look, because I, I got the um, the job compare Linkman DJ to the, to that to that tour mm. from uh, John Curd at Straight Music. I was on the show. And um, Billy said to me, look, he said, we need some help. We've got a problem with the record company. We've got, because my copy was imported, you see. I always used to get white labels and imports. Mm. And I expected a you know, European release. And Billy said, well, it's not going to happen because Capital Records are sitting on it and they think it won't sell at all, even though we've got the support for the Sammy Hager tour. Yeah. And we need, we seriously need some help, you know. I said, okay, all right, Bill, I'll go down to London and I'll have words with you know, the MD down there, because they know me because of EMI as well. They're in the same building. Mm. And um, that finished up in a, <laughs> in a massive rough and a bit of cheap. Um, I, I stormed in there, <laughs> slammed his fist down on, on this poor man's desk and said, <laughs> you fucker, why won't you release this album? <laughs> the band are here. They're going to sell. I'm telling you they'll sell. Mm. Now release it for fuck's sake while they're coming over on tour. Yeah. You'll be all right. It will sell. And before he could call his security man, <laughs> we calmed down, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. sat down and discussed it. And they released it in the end. But it was a hard, hard job. Oh, yeah. But anyway, you know, it, it, it was received not very well. My contact at CBS, how Thompson's name was, who had happily supplied me with a visit by Judas Priest at the wagon to meet the kids. Mm. And continually, Rob Halford used to come down all the time when he was in London. Um, Howard just couldn't hear it for some reason or other. His words basically were, you must be joking, Neil. Yeah. I said, no, I'm not joking, Howard. 
you are going to miss out on one of the great future bands of this world. They're going to rock this fucking world, and they're going to rock you as well. So stop being stupid. You've got Priest anyway. What a brilliant package on yeah, tour that yeah, would yeah, make. Yeah. Think about it. Think about it. Young band maiden, established great band Judas Priest. I mean, fucking hell. And of course, it, it happened, happened eventually. Later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was bloody obvious, except he couldn't yeah. see it. And there was a lot of them like mm. that. You know, what I used to hear a lot further was from companies like Atlantic and their, and their you know, um, collection of sub-labels, and Warner Brothers as well. Ah, oh, yes, but if it sounded more like Bad Company, mm. if it sounded more like blah, 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 yeah. you know, for fuck's sake. Yeah. It was during that period of work, you know, Maiden's tape around, that my opinion of A&R became... Permanent. It sounds like they're always looking to find the next something, but not the first anything. Well, they're, they're totally unimaginative. The other problem with most of them is, you know, the head, I mean, like Muff Winwood, who I, I got to meet, Steve Winwood's brother. You know Steve Winwood from Traffic, the band? I'm aware of them, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So Muff Winwood in, in my day was the head of um, CBS Epic. Epic were up there as well in in, in uh, central London. Mm. And um, I, I recall a conversation that Muff was telling me about um, that he had with his younger A&R round table kids, as he called them, you know? Yeah. And he was talking about punk, which I fucking ate anyway, and he knew it. Mm. And, it, I, and he, I said to him, listen, how do you know which punk band to sign, right? Because they can't play, they can't write, they can't sing, they denigrate rock to the very basis of its soul, and yet you sign these bands and you put out their material question mark, you put out their shit more like, because it's business. I understand that. But how do you differentiate between good and bad? And he said, I'll tell you what, Neil, I can't. I have to let the young ones decide. I haven't got a clue. Mm. I couldn't tell you. Because they're nothing to do in the musical sense with what we've come to use as, you know, a, a yard arm, a measuring stick. Yeah, yeah. As you say, you know, they are an anti-music fashion, which ridiculously uses the 12-bar concept anyway, which is nonsense as well. They declare themselves to be anti-rock and roll, and yet that's the very basis of most of their tracks. So... He he, you know he 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 left it to to, to the A and R youngsters, but they 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 know absolutely nothing. And when they come to discuss, you know, musicians, new bands, and all the rest of it, I mean, for Christ's sake, you'd think somebody, you know, down there would have a, a modicum of common sense and musical understanding. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, they don't. Right the way through my life working with many bands, young bands, project bands that I've built, not only in this country, but abroad as well. Mm. Funnily enough, I tell you the one man back in the 60s, late 60s, Laurel Canyon based amongst the troubadours up there at the time. It's going to be Neil Young, is it? <laughs> no, 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 he was up there. No, it's not Neil Young. It's David Geffen. Ah, yes. David Geffen knew precisely a great band when he heard one. He did. Mm. I mean, I, I've got an affiliation to folk rock as well. Mm. I mean, my years are 60s. I grew up in. Anyway, the Laurel Canyon Troubadours is a great story, you know, that starts with some of the most outstanding folk singers of the day and finishes up with the Eagles. Mm. You know, the birds, Mr. Tambourine Man, you know, that. They all lived up there. You you know this. Yes. Yeah. And it's a great story. And I love some of the stuff that came out of there, really. I mean, Arlo Guthrie is one of my favorite folk rock heroes. His father, Woody Guthrie, traveled the rails in the 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I know my history pretty well. Um, oh, I've got one for you as well. This is so obscure. But it's a deep meaning one, and I really have to let you know, we'll drop this one on you. We're leaving the post-war era, 
for a minute mm -hmm. because I want to take you back to the late 30s and early 1940s. Okay. I'm going to tell you basically how or who was one of the first exponents of harmony musicianship. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested. And it happened to be Glenn Miller. Right. Now, Glenn Miller was a young trombone player who was touring with one of the dance bands of the day, Ben Pollock's orchestra. Mm -hmm. Ben Pollock had this orchestra. He was the drummer in the band, but it was his band. Young Glenn Miller was a trombonist in, in the band. When our touring on in the day was done with sort of vans and estate vehicles, really, you know, it was very rudimentary, yeah. right? When they got to New York, after playing the venues they were booked to play, Miller leaves the band. And he's got this thing in his head about this sound that he was always searching for. But he didn't know musically exactly what it was. Anyway, he leaves Ben Pollock's band, orchestra, and he takes up a study group with a musical professor. Okay. Now, in the course of learning more about how to handle the brass sections of a big, of a big band, which is swing band, right? Miller, for the first time ever, has almost single-handedly changed the future because he has learned from this professor how to close harmonize the different instruments and sections within his band. Right. The standard, the standard um, harmony intervals that we use today, the root note is, or the root chord, is the basic chord that everybody uses in the melody. Mm -hmm. Then the standard harmonies run third above and fifth above, or in extreme circumstances, maybe a seventh, but you can also go third below root and a fifth as well. And for the first time, Glenn Miller's orchestra started having these really sweet sounds produced mm. by layering harmonies on the instruments instead of the whole orchestra playing in the same chord, the same key. And Miller was the first man nearly to do this. And to this very day, every rock guitarist in the world will tell you that the harmonies they use above root are thirds and fifths. Right. So Miller is the man. Very interesting. Okay. Buddy Holly was a very important person mm. in the history of rock. He was so important, he devised the overdub technique that we all use today. He also was the first to record what you might term as unofficial arrangements. He did his own. Normally in his day, an orchestra or a band or musicians would play the track. And all he and all you did was sing your song. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. His was the first, you know, example of stepping out on your own mm. and refusing to do what you were told. When he did that, would be the day. You know, I think he, I can't remember where he went. I think he might have been Memphis. I can't remember where he went to record it. He was out of Lubbock, Texas, they were. But he had come up against this country and Western producer in a studio that put together a bunch of yeehaws in in there to play the backing track. Country fiddle, um, you know, just block chord guitar. And it was in a sort of a lilting country and western way. And he <laughs> fucking hated it. And he finished up arguing with the producer and decking him and taking his band <laughs> out. No, he did. He did. And, um, you know, he said, that's not the way we're meant to be. And Buddy Holly, in my view, only in my view, I'd say, to me, was more important to the progression of our own format than Elvis Presley ever was. Yeah. Elvis Presley was a media creation by Colonel Tom Parker. Wow, yeah. He yeah, wiggled his head yeah. and his bollocks around, mm. and everyone went mad. Yeah. But serious musicianship mm. actually came from, you know, people like Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, mm -hmm. Little Richard, you know. And another thing as well that's interesting, rock and roll was conceived originally in the minds of the many as a black thing. Mm. Yeah. So much so that when Buddy Holly and the Crickets played their first show in New York, they weren't booked into one of the main white venues. <laughs> they they were booked into one of the one of the black venues in Harlem. When the curtains opened, oh fucking hell. <laughs>
Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, I, I've actually lectured in the history of rock as well mm. and co at college level. And in, funnily enough, in Portugal too, strangely enough. Uh, we had a place down there and I got very heavily involved in the music scene down there in later years and finished up producing and arranging a band down there over about 25, 30 years. And um, I used to work with a music school down there too, as it happens, and built a couple of kids' bands. Mm. So, you know, I'm, I'm very much aware of all this and I love the history. Mm. And I can tell you that some of the people at the bandwagon were as serious, messianic even, you know, as I. Yeah. Which is why we got on so very well. Because mm. they knew that they could trust me. Yeah. And I would never, ever lie to them about anything musical, nor about anyone in the industry. If I heard something that was presented and it was not of the standard that I had, then I would tell them so. Mm. It's no good lying to people and telling them how great they are when they're not. True. You're only going to lead them on. Um, yeah. And th that's kind of been my thing. Sure. Okay. So let's go back a small bit again. Okay. Listen, you can have as long you can have as long as you want with me. I don't mind. The Australian one I did went on for four hours. <laughs> okay. So, so so to the Peruvian one, three and a half hours. Yes, you you, you did warn me in advance, all right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I've got a lot of stories. For, you know they're 55 years worth no that's fine I'm very much enjoying it so um, sorry what I was going to ask you was so like the, the sound house has gone from 75 you said until 1980 yes and you, you met Steve Harris in 79 but uh, at one point Iron Maiden ends up playing a gig here kind of shortly after they give you the cassette demo but um, was were gigs like a, a regular part of the Soundhouse or did they come about in later years? Or I haven't heard you mention live music being performed uh, in the venue. That's very important. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay, well, in the early stages, we only had Wednesday night mm. and I didn't have the staging. I mean, the, the, there wasn't a big stage. What I had to do, the stage was taken up by us. <laughs> the, the rack of amplifiers, crossovers that ran the system mm. Um, and I didn't have room on my stage for a band. But what we did, as soon as we had the five the five nights and the tapes started arriving, I knew it wasn't enough to represent yeah. these bands that deserved it around the industry alone. Yeah. We had to put our money where our mouth was and put them on. Yes. And besides, the kids wanted to see them yeah. as well. You know, so I, I spoke with the Prince of Wales manager the pub manager, a total fucking idiot. Right. And, uh, oh, he was, believe me, he was. Malcolm Tate, he hailed from north of the border, fucking idiot. I mean, he stayed mainly in the background anyway most of the time. I got him to build me some add-on stage blocks that added onto the front of my stage mm -hmm. without taking up all the room in the place. And they were strong enough and big enough and high enough to put a band on. And as soon as we had them, that was it. Um, they couldn't, no band used my PA. It was bigger and better than anything they ever had. <laughs> they used to bring their own right. back then. Yeah. There's no venue yeah. had its own sound system. Mm. Right. So it was obvious to me with all these demo tapes flying around a lot of bands, you know, I could actually sort of have a circuit and I would have a band a week. I, I had five nights. So yeah. why don't we do Friday night or Saturday night as band night? Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we could have a, Usually only one band. We didn't have room for two. There's no way we could stage two. But we were on the circuit regularly. And, you know, bands come and went from Liverpool, Nuts, Angel Witch, Toad, the Wet Sprocket. I don't know. <laughs> they, they were, you know, Witch Fine from Nottingham. Ethel the Frog, probably. Oh, no, they never played the wagon. Did they not? <laughs> that was a long way away. <laughs> okay. Ethel the fucking frog. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, really. That's fun. You know, but I mean, a lot of bands on oh, Prime Mantis, absolutely, they were they were with Iron Maiden the winners, mm. clear winners, obvious. But yeah, the first band that I put on was Pete Townsend's younger brother with a band called Heroes. Okay. Now, I'd actually been contacted by this guy, Pete's young brother, mm. to go down to Eel Pie Island in the Thames and helped to produce a demo um, tape for them. 
in Pete's billion pound studio. Fucking hell. Mm. He even had a black widow in a glass case hanging up. That is a Les Paul Gibson with gold humbuckings on board and gold machine heads. Okay, all right. Okay. It's called Black Widow. I haven't heard of this. Okay. No, no, well, I'm just, you know, for the information. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was absolutely beautiful. I'd heard rumors that it existed. I've never seen it. And it was there in a beautiful glass case. I mean, you know, the Who by then were heroes to the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, they were big, big, big. Anyway, we somehow managed to maintain a sort of a friendship loosely with them. Not the Who directly. But the irony was we found out only recently that Keith Moon's first band actually used to rehearse at the bloody bandwagon. Okay. Years before, right. in the early 60s, before we ever got there. And I never knew that. Mm. I never, ever knew that, mm. which is weird. Um, so, basically, they were the first band we ever put on. And, you know, band night was was a good night. I I fill in, you know, early on before putting the band on. And there was no interval. The band played straight through. Samson was a good band. Mm. Paul Samson. I mean, they were close friends for a while. We had a hell of a falling out over the um, heavy metal crusade that I did with his manager, Alistair Primrose, for what was then called Ram Cup Promotions. Okay. Ram Promotions, what a stupid name. <laughs> Alistair Primrose was all right, Paul Samson's manager. Talk, phoned me up one day and said, look, I managed Samson. We'd like to, you know, have a gig at the wagon. I said, send me a tape. Send me a tape. Paul Samson was a very accredited guitarist, but in the old-fashioned way, a blues man, basically, mm. he used to cover people like Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush, for example. Did his own blues and stuff, you know. He was he was like a member of the new wave of British heavy metal because he was around at that time, but he'd been there before, and in his view, it never happened. It just went away. Yeah. It was always there. Mm. He never acknowledged, like Def Leppard, like Joe Elliott, who I've also had serious words with. Mm. And so too Malcolm Dove, mm. because Joe Elliott decided they were not a new wave of British heavy metal band and didn't want to be associated with Oh, them. yes. But they forgot a few points. I gave them their first ever London break at my music machine show in Camden Town mm. when they were only 14 and 15. Right. And basically, it's not... And they were a heavy metal band of a kind. Yeah. Just a northern pub band. Nothing special at the time. Mm. But they were a heavy metal band, and the fact is they surfaced in the time span of the new wave of British heavy metal, which is why Malcolm Dome and I said that they are a member of Nwobham. Well, yeah. Because yeah. that's fact. But Joe Elliott won't have it. No. So I'm afraid there's an impasse. Yeah, well, I mean, like, yeah. the Def Leppard EP or, or Entry of the Night are very much quite close to heavy metal, like, so... Oh yeah, it is. I know. I, I know he, he likes to distance himself from it now, but there's no denying, really, in the early days with the early releases that they were what you, what would pass as heavy metal, definitely. Well, they were. I mean, they were kids anyway. I mean, Christ, their grandparents and their parents came with them hmm. down to London from Sheffield. Hmm. They were the youngest band I think I ever put on. Hmm. Mick Parker, the manager of the London Music Machine, uh, sometime in the mid to late, well, late seventies. I would have said, um, said, listen, I know, yeah, I know who you are. We know what you're doing. How would you like to have a night down here once a week, maybe a Thursday mm. or something, mm. and you can put on your own three band shows. You can compare it and do your thing. Mm. And um, that place holds 1,500 people. And also, it's easier for the, you know, the media, the journalists, to come out of their feeted little squalid offices up the road rather than tra transport themselves all the way up to Kingsbury. And the chances are, because it's the music machine, we've got bars here and pool rooms and stuff, you know, more of your bands will be seen. Yeah. So I, I jumped at the chance. I mean, what an offer to run my own night down there. Mm. It was the old BBC TV theatre. 
I mean, it was well known. Oh, fuck knows what they call it today. It's still, you know, the music machine to me. It's something else now. Coco's, I think, possibly. So basically, um, I took on Mick Parker's offer and started stretching out for bands because now I could put two or three bands a night on rather than just one up at the wagon. Mm. Still did it at the wagon as well on a Saturday night. Mm. We still had band night. And those that did well, you know, at the Music Machine show, I'd invite up to the wagon because the wagon was now becoming a prestigious venue. Mm. No beginners went in there. First of all, live bands had to compete with my sound system and it was bigger and better than anything they had. That wasn't intentional. Yeah. It's just the way it was. Mm. Um, by now, the subcontractors at the bandwagon had built their own their own factory and they were manufacturing amplifiers, JPS Associates amps, and um well, DJ backline if you want, you know, this custom built discotheque consoles and mixers working the way that I would want them mm. to work, not the way everyone else wanted them. And they built me a butte, actually, they did. Um, with touch sensitive switching and stuff, which was really advanced back then, you know, and they understood equipment and they understood sound. In fact, the American company Serwin Vega contacted me one time and wanted to know if I'd like one of their big test rigs in the sound house in the wagon. Mm. And I accepted and said, Yeah, sure. Yeah. I said, You can have it for a few months if you want. It was actually looked horrible. It was covered in gray felt fur, and all the drivers and horns were red. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> and um, it proved not to be as good as the system we had in there. Right. Which was a shame, really. But you can't beat Martin, JBL, and stuff like that. I mean, and Gauss drivers, you know, top of the range stuff, my man, top of the range gear. Anyway, you know, so that was just a buy. I was also, by the way, uh, sponsored by Sennheiser. This gentleman arrived at the front door of the bandwagon one night, and he was suit and tied. Mm. And he said, I, I want to see Neil Kay yeah. at the door. And they sent one of the security up to the stage and said, look, there's this heavily dressed businessman with a suit, with a briefcase, a briefcase, that's it. He said he wants to talk to you. And he says he's from the company Sennheiser who I knew immediately who they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, I don't know what he wants. This is amazing. I said, look, let him come up and speak with me. It's all right. We'll waive the... The dress code. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the dress code to see him, you know. And um, anyway, he came up. He, he said, hello, my name's... Well, I don't know what it was. He shook my hand. He produced a card and said, look, we've been following your career. We know you work at very high level as well as club size. We would like the opportunity to sponsor you with a microphone of your choice. And in the suitcase, he opened it and he had a load of different mics all laying in there. Mm. And he said, you can pick any one of these and we will look after it for you and we'll service it for you as long as you use it everywhere you go mm. and tell people about our product. Mm. And I thought, oh, heaven, thank you. This is unbelievable. So I chose what what's known as an MD mm. uh, 421, 421 MD, um, which is the square-shaped mic that's been around for years and years and years. And the outline of it is on the front of my book. Yeah, and I picked a 421 MD, and I still have it to this day. Mm. They put a new uh, capsule in it for me, but it's the mic I used when I did Donington, yeah. the Monsters of Rock show, and it's the one I toured with. So it really is a great vocal mic, and it has a four-position bass roll-off switch at the bottom. But my voice is very bassy. There's a lot of bottom end in it, and you need a good mic to bring that out. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of positive on a mic. Yeah. I don't whisper. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that was Neil Kay, and that was the second part in my interview with him that took place back in December. Next week, I am most likely going to finish it off. There's a large portion left to edit into an episode, longer than what we had in episodes one or two. I may finish it off with episode three. I may do a final 
fourth episode. We'll see. Anyway, another episode coming at you next week, whether it be the final one or the penultimate one. That's just for you, George, which would make this the anti-penultimate. Anyway, yeah, that's going to do it for this episode, whatever that is, uh, anti-penultimate or penultimate. And just because of the day that's in it, I'm very appreciative of the feckin' metal listenership. So just for you, here's a love song. Ladies and gentlemen, how do? (laughs) 